welcome to the Philadelphia Channel, spotlighting the innovators making meaningful impact throughout the region across a wide range of collaborative and creative fields, including philanthropy, education, technology, family life, social entrepreneurship, advocacy of the arts, and more. Here's your host, Robert Rim. Jeffrey Rosen is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. He's also a professor at the George Washington University Law School and is a highly regarded and widely published journalist, as well as the author of six books. The Chicago Tribune named him one of the 10 best magazine journalists in America, and a reviewer for the Los Angeles Times called him the nation's most widely read and influential legal commentator. Located on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, steps from where the Constitution was signed, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. A private nonprofit institution, the center's three goals for fulfilling its mission can be summarized in three words, visit, learn, debate. And with those crucial perspectives in mind, Jeffrey, welcome to the Philadelphia Channel. It is wonderful to be here. I'd like to begin our podcast with something you've written. The more I participate in constitutional conversations, the more convinced I am that the Constitution is a conversation, one where citizens of different backgrounds and perspectives can disagree respectfully and energetically about the constitutional text and shape its meaning in the future. So my question is, when people have a heightened awareness of the Constitution and all that it entails, those disagreements are indeed more often than not respectful, aren't they? They are indeed. And it is inspiring in these polarized times to discover how respectfully people can agree and disagree about this great document of human freedom, which unites us. At the beginning of all of our constitutional conversations at the Constitution Center and online and around the country, I always begin by asking people to separate their political from their constitutional views asking not what they think the government should do, but what the Constitution allows or prohibits the government from doing. And that move, which is also one that I use when I teach constitutional law, encourages people to rise above their partisan predispositions, to dig into the text and history of the Constitution, to open their minds to the arguments on all sides of the really important and complicated constitutional issues at the center of American life, and sometimes to reach conclusions where their political and constitutional views clash. So, for example, they might conclude that gun control is a really great idea, but the Second Amendment prohibits it, or that it's a bad idea, but the Second Amendment allows it. And and that just takes the politics out of these conversations and elevates them in the most moving and meaningful way. So the longer that I have the privilege of hosting these conversations, the more optimistic I am about all that unites Americans. And have you found that people are indeed able to separate the political from the constitutional when politics are so fraught these days? They are in every setting. I just talked a few days ago to a wonderful group of school kids out in Louisville, Kentucky, and we began by discussing a a new law that Kentucky's just passed, which makes it a misdemeanor offense to cause disruption or interruption to ordinary school operations. And the question is, is that consistent with the First Amendment? And the students were able to separate their indignation at the idea of being disciplined 
you know, for minor infractions from the tough question of, of what the Supreme Court has said on the issue. And it was inspiring to see them engage in that enterprise. And people of all audiences and backgrounds and ages are able to do it. And I really have faith in the citizens of the United States to separate their political from their constitutional views. I'm so glad to hear that. And the National Constitution Center's compelling new exhibit is called Hamilton, the Constitutional Clashes that Shaped a Nation. And it explores Alexander Hamilton's fraught relationships with James Madison, with Thomas Jefferson, with John Adams, with Aaron Burr. Tell us about these clashes and how they inform, or should I say, how they should inform today's debates. All of American history can be viewed as a clash between Hamilton and Jefferson, between Hamilton's vision of strong national government with robust powers to regulate the economy and a strong president, with Jefferson's notion of a constrained national government and strong states' rights and a more constrained presidency. And that clash was just one of the clashes of the early republic. Hamilton also clashed with of course, with Burr in the, in the famous duel, but even with Adams, a member of his own party, about partly partisan issues and also about the nature of the Constitution, or about Madison uh, when it came to the presidency, where Hamilton favored a, a presidency for life and Madison, a more constrained president, um, ending up in the presidency that we have today. So it's very exciting to use these great figures and their personalities and their personal stories, which have electrified people of all backgrounds through shows like Hamilton, to tell the story of a clash of ideas, because America is based on a series of founding principles and ideas, and there were strong and legitimate disagreements about those ideas. And here at the Constitution Center, we're trying to bring the battle of ideas to life. And it's no coincidence, is it, that the Hamilton Broadway show is such a success? Uh, no, it's, of course, wonderful to see how many people of all ages Hamilton has electrified and made real history and made it accessible and to people of different uh, backgrounds and, and ages. And we, like so many of our friends and colleagues, are trying to use that excitement to teach history in the Constitution and it was exciting to be able to get some really meaningful Hamilton artifacts. Many of them are kept at the Fenimore Cooper Museum in upstate New York, which generously lent us artifacts, including a lock of Hamilton's hair, which his wife cut off right after the fatal duel. And it was striking to see that he was a strawberry blonde. Who, uh, who knew? And also the writing desk on which he wrote the Federalist Papers and original copies of the letters setting up the duel and to see him have the chance to back away. Burr asked him to withdraw the insults and Hamilton refused. And then inexorably, you see the, the fatal appointment being set up. And so it was just great to be able to assemble these artifacts and wonderful to be able to share them with people around the country. And his role in the constitutional and political arguments are as relevant today as ever, aren't they? And is the scope of the national government now, in fact, clear? The battle between Hamilton and Jefferson remains alive today. Hamilton's greatest role at the founding was as an author of the Federalist Papers, the great essays defending the Constitution that he and Madison and John Jay wrote after the Constitution was proposed. 
and Hamilton's defense of the power of judges to strike down unconstitutional laws and his account of powers of the presidency and Congress are extraordinarily important. But today, once again, we're seeing a strong and legitimate debate about the scope of the national government. Some conservatives and libertarians argue that Congress has delegated too much power to the president and that the presidency has turned into a kind of imperial presidency. And now, ever since 2016, some progressives are joining them in in those criticisms and wondering whether, for example, a president who claims emergency powers may violate the framers' intent. So there's renewed interest in those old debates about the scope of the national government and Supreme Court cases that had long seemed settled are being re-examined. Wonky doctrines like the non-delegation doctrine, which says that Congress can't delegate too much power to the president, are before the Supreme Court once again this very term. And it's just a thrilling time for constitutional discussion and all the more important to learn about these founding era that we can understand what's going on today. Hmm. And about that debate, the latest episode of We the People, your weekly show about constitutional debate, is titled, Is the Presidency Too Powerful? Have American presidents usurped greater power over time, or did Congress and the people surrender power? That was exactly the question that I had the pleasure and privilege of posing to our two scholars, Eric Posner and Julian Zelitzer, and they disagreed about whether Congress and the people had voluntarily surrendered too much power or whether presidents had usurped power by claiming a popular mandate that the framers didn't anticipate. And it's not, this is not a partisan split. It was Posner, the more conservative scholar who argued that the imperial presidency was appropriate and Zelitzer was more of a Congress guy. But most important, Importantly, they provided a historical perspective and noted that it was the election of 1912 that pitted the constitutionalist William Howard Taft, who said the president could only do what the Constitution explicitly allowed, against the two progressive populists, Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt, who said the president could do anything the Constitution didn't forbid. So that was just one example of these great constitutional debates where we can learn so much from history and realize that our current fixations are not the product of just current partisan clashes, but have been going on for a long time. And about learning so much from history, one of your featured exhibits is American Treasures documenting the nation's founding. It's an intimate look at the path the framers took to create the U.S. Constitution and also to secure the Bill of Rights. How would you compare that process with what's going on in the current national political environment? Well, first, I have to say how exciting it is to be able to host the five rarest copies of the Constitution in one place. These documents are lent to us by our friends at the Pennsylvania Historical Society, and it's incredibly cool, and your listeners must come to the Constitution Center and see them, uh, because it's never before have these five rare copies been in public in the same place. And you can see the very first draft of the Constitution, written by James Wilson, an unsung hero from Pennsylvania, who wrote the first words that anyone ever wrote in the convention. And the first words of the Constitution were resolved that the government of the United States shall consist of uh, executive, judicial, and legislative branch. And listeners can go online to American Treasures at the National Constitution Center. Just Google those two words and you'll find it. And you can compare the drafts as they move through the debate process. And you can see that Wilson's 
original preamble evolved. So the second draft of the preamble said, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, uh, Rhode Island and Providence Plantation and so forth, do ordain and establish the Constitution. The third draft said, we the people of the United States, signaling Wilson's belief that the people of the entire United States were sovereign, and therefore the consent of the whole people would be necessary before the union could be changed. And Lincoln invoked Wilson's arguments when he denied the power of the South to unilaterally secede. So all of this extraordinarily interesting and important debates can be traced out through the evolving drafts. And again, you can see them at the Constitution Center, see the sacred uh, documents themselves or online where you can compare the texts. And these questions are directly relevant to our current debates, including new moves by some states, both red and blue states, to defy or resist federal law through movements from sanctuary cities to some rumblings of nullification and new questions about whether the president and Congress are exceeding their boundaries. So, so that's why this constitutional history is so extraordinarily relevant, as well as being fresh and interesting. And studying it through the text is such a great way to do it, because that way citizens can make up their own minds. There, there are legitimate differences. There's a clash of ideas today about what these balances should involve, just as there were in the times of Wilson and Hamilton and Jefferson. And by looking at the evolution of the text themselves, citizens can inform their current thinking. And now, a word from Arch Street Press. In its review, the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal had this to say about Genership 1.0, Beyond Leadership Toward Liberating the Creative Soul. David Castro's book does something courageous that we haven't seen before in this genre. He questions the very concept of leadership itself, thinking through its limitations. He meditates on specific and interrelated organizational practices central to creativity within groups. Listening, co-thinking, co-visioning, relationships, conflict and learning, systems thinking, creativity, and group dynamics. Castro invites us to think about ways this community practice of creativity is central to human progress and even to human identity. We now return to Jeffrey and Robert. About being informed, and you talked about legitimate differences, tell us about your town hall programs, what they entail, and also what's upcoming in March. The town halls are a wonderful opportunity for citizens at the Constitution Center or online to hear the greatest thought leaders in America from different perspectives debate and discuss issues that are relevant to the Constitution. So sometimes we have liberals and conservatives debating an issue. And a great example that's coming up in March is our debate with Intelligence Squared, our wonderful partner. And the question essentially is, should Facebook, Google, and Twitter have to follow the First Amendment? And that's one of the most urgently and interesting questions in American life today, because the First Amendment, like the whole Bill of Rights, applies to government. It says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say Facebook shall make no law. So we're going to have some phenomenal debaters on both sides, including Nate personally at Stanford, who's leading up an effort for Facebook saying no, and David French from the National Review saying yes. And that's just one example of the kind of debate that we host. We also have discussions with America's leading authors one-on-one. I just had a great conversation with General McChrystal about his new book, Advocating for National Service, and the journalist Michael Tomaski for a really interesting book on 
political polarization. And Tomaski taught me and the audience that although American parties were always polarized dating back to the time of the framing, they used to be cross-partisan. In other words, there were pro and anti-slavery Whigs or pro and anti-national bank Democratic Republicans. And it was only in the 1960s that the parties became ideologically pure. So in 1960, there were a 50% overlap between the most liberal Republicans and the most conservative Democrats. And today in Congress, there is no overlap at all. So that, that's just a small flavor of the incredibly rich offerings that we have. These programs often sell out, although I want listeners to be confident that they can get in. And if you have trouble finding a seat, then let our staff know and we'll find a way. But it's just inspiring to see our mid-sized theater, the Kimmel Theater, fill up with 200 people night after night during the year with citizens who are hungry to learn about the Constitution from different perspectives. And you use the word urgent. That's certainly apropos. And one of your upcoming town hall programs in March is called Free Speech on College Campuses. So where should universities, in fact, draw the line? Well, that's exactly what we will be debating. And there are (laughs) who say that uh, they should draw the line precisely where the Supreme Court has said that government should draw the line, namely that no speech can be banned unless it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. That's the extraordinarily rigorous standard that comes from my hero, Justice Louis Brandeis's towering opinion in the Whitney against California case, which I recommend to listeners as the greatest statement of free speech of the 20th century and the Supreme Court adopted in the 1960s. But others disagree and say that values like dignity and equality are more important than liberty and that students should have safe spaces that protect them from offensive speech. And those views are very strongly held as well. So we're going to assemble some great university presidents and deans, as well as professors, to talk about their experience of free speech in the classroom, and they'll be taking different positions about exactly where the line should be drawn. And it's also good for listeners to know that the town hall programs will be live streamed, and so they can watch them as they're happening. Does this occur with each one of the town hall programs? Yes, all of the town hall programs are live streamed, so you can watch them live, or you can go to the debate page or to our YouTube channel and watch archived versions of all the town hall programs, or you can go to our Live in America's Town Hall podcast. So that's a companion podcast to We the People and basically is the audio feeds of our town hall programs. And a lot of folks like to listen to long form content through podcasts, as your podcast listeners know. So it's just a great way to educate yourself when you're driving or on the bike or walking to work our goal is to get out these programs as widely as possible. Yeah, and talking about as widely as possible, it's also great to see your worldwide traveling exhibits. Tell us about them. We are thrilled to digitize our exhibits and put them online so people can check them out. And the most important outreach that we have on the web is our interactive constitution, which is the web platform for all of our exhibits and education work. It's this amazing platform that unites the top liberal and conservative scholars in America to discuss every clause of the Constitution, writing about what they agree about and what they disagree about. So you can click on the Second Amendment and find a thousand words about what the liberal and conservative scholar agree the Second Amendment means and separate statements about what they disagree about. We launched this rebooted platform in 2015, and it's gotten 20 million hits since it launched 
in 2015, and the Constitution Center is now the fourth or fifth, depending on the month, most visited museum website in America after the Smithsonian, the Metropolitan Museum, the Holocaust Museum, and the Museum of Modern Art. So that's the hunger for this kind of online constitutional content. And in September, we are upgrading the interactive constitution so it includes videos with Supreme Court justices, new online platforms that allow you to explore the evolving text of each provision of the Constitution, lesson plans for middle and high school kids, and most excitingly of all in some ways, a new series of online exchanges where classrooms around the country can sign up for moderated constitutional conversations. So we've had classrooms in Philadelphia talking to classrooms in Kentucky about what the First Amendment requires in conversations moderated by a judge. We are thrilled that the Philadelphia School District will be sending increasing numbers of kids to the Constitution Center, and they'll become constitutional ambassadors and go back to their classrooms and connect with other classrooms across the country through these exchanges. And finally, uh, I feel like a Ginsu, Ginsu knife salesman, but there's more. <laughs> uh, far from it. <laughs> we're, we're, uniting, we're uniting all of our all of our podcasts and videos will be integrated and organized on the interactive constitution. So a podcast on the First Amendment, you can find it when you click on the First Amendment and presidential powers when you click on the presidency and so forth. The the final really cool thing about this relaunch in September is that the College Board, which administers the advanced placement exams, is working with us and will distribute our materials to all three to five million advanced placement students. And kids who take an AP class after they finish taking it will take a two-week course on the First Amendment centered on the interactive constitution. So it's just really exciting. You began by really well describing our three goals, visit, learn, debate, to be able to integrate all of these goals centered at the museum and at the exhibits, the town hall programs and the podcast, and then the educational materials all onto one online platform. Because after all, it's just all a form of constitutional education and to have it free and available to every person in America and around the world whenever they take the time to educate themselves about the constitution. It's terrific to hear about these classrooms, and you also have a Young Citizen Scholarship Program. What's your sense of the involvement among today's youth in constitutional awareness and civic education? Well, many of us have seen the statistics about low levels of constitutional engagement and substantive knowledge. The Annenberg Foundation has found year after year that only 30% of Americans can name all three branches of government, and a third cannot name a single branch. And we've also seen majorities of young people believing that the First Amendment allows the banning of hate speech, even though the U.S. Supreme Court has held the opposite, and growing support among young people for authoritarian alternatives to democracy. So all this is alarming, and that's why justices, including Justices uh, Neil Gorsuch and Sonia Sotomayor, have identified this as as a crisis in civic knowledge. On the other hand, we are heartened at the Constitution Center to see how eagerly students respond to meaningful and engaging materials about the Constitution, and people who've studied the Constitution are more likely to support democratic institutions and to oppose overturning judicial decisions by popular vote than those who haven't. And we're also excited that after engaging with our materials, students experience a 70% increase in knowledge about the separation of powers, for example, or about the other stuff they're studying. 
So as as I said, I'm an optimist and an evangelist for the virtues of this constitutional education. I believe that by creating all of this great educational material and putting it online, we can distribute it and meaningfully increase levels of civic knowledge. And that is exactly what we're trying to do. And about things online, I love that your website features your visitor guide in eight languages. What's your sense on Americans' perspective on foreign countries and cultures? Well, our our schools are not centrally trained in that kind of important comparative study, and in, in particular in comparative constitutional study. And that's why we're so excited at the Interactive Constitution to include a feature called Constitutions Around the Globe that allows you to click on a particular right say, the American prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures, and see all the other countries in the globe, on a big globe, that protect a version of that right. And through that tool, you can see that in Japan, when General MacArthur wrote the Japanese constitution, he cut and pasted the American Fourth Amendment, so the language is 53% the same, whereas the Russian Fourth Amendment looks nothing like ours and is a very thin prohibition against state evidence gathering. So we're trying to encourage those kind of conversations about the spread of the American constitution around the globe and encourage people to compare the texts. And in a increasingly globalized world, that kind of study is very important. Yeah. And your interactive constitution is not only on your website, but it's an app that uh, people can download and have instant access to, isn't it? It absolutely is. Just go to the app store, search for interactive constitution. It is completely free and you can delight and instruct yourself during your moments of jogging or or walking. Pick a constitutional provision you didn't know before. I always find a new one. There are 80 of them, like the Export and Port Preference Clause or the Foreign Emoluments Clause, and you can click on it and, and learn all about it on your smartphones. And looking ahead throughout March, the National Constitution Center hosts a variety of special programs in honor of Women's History Month. Uh, Tell us about the museum's main exhibit, The Story of We the People. Well, this has been the permanent exhibit of the Constitution Center since it opened. It is a great introduction to the basic ideas of the Constitution, beginning with the Founders Library, so you can see and listen to the books that James Madison read before the Constitutional Convention about the fallen democracies of Greece and Rome and how he believed that unchecked direct democracy would lead to demagogues and the mob. And then you can walk all around and learn about the second founding uh, during the Civil War and Reconstruction, about the progressive era, about the New Deal, about current debates, as well as a really neat feature where you can vote on what you think about current issues in American politics and then see the presidents that your preferences lined up with. And and often people are surprised to find uh, that out, too. You can take the oath of office and be photographed with the chief justice of the Supreme Court. You can see the Supreme Court bench and sit behind it and engage with oral arguments. And it's just a great interactive experience for kids and learners of all ages to get excited about the Constitution. And for Women's History Month, visitors can also discover defining moments in women's history, like uh, women's suffrage, the efforts to pass an Equal Rights Amendment. So these are key aspects of the exhibit, aren't they, in March? Absolutely. And Women's History Month is such a great time to tee up the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which is going to occur in 2020. And we will have a special exhibit about the 100th anniversary and about the fight for women's suffrage, which was such a central addition to the Constitution in 1920. And it's just a great time to begin to think 
about the central role of women's suffrage in American history. And the National Constitution Center also hosts one of its popular Girl Scout Days on March 9th. Tell us about them. Those are great opportunities for scouts of all ages to come to the center. And there's discounted admission, one free scout leader for every 10 scouts. And we have guided tours and flag ceremonies. And it's just a great field trip. And Girl Scouts of all ages should come on March 9th from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. And uh, tell us also about the center's upcoming feature exhibits. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of the one opening in May, the Civil War and Reconstruction, the Battle for Freedom and Equality. We are so excited to create the first permanent gallery in America devoted to the constitutional legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's called the Battle for Freedom and Equality, and it includes rare artifacts from the priceless collection of the Civil War Museum of Philadelphia, which will be on permanent display at the Constitution Center. They include Dred Scott's Freedom Petition, John Brown's Pike, Frederick Douglass's Inkwell, from which he wrote his unforgettable letter to his master asserting his freedom, as well as the flag that flew over Independence Hall in 1861 when Lincoln made his unforgettable speech declaring that he would rather be assassinated on the spot and abandon the principles of equality and freedom embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Broadly, the gallery tells the story of how the equality promised in the Declaration was thwarted in the original Constitution, resurrected by Lincoln at Gettysburg and by Frederick Douglass and other heroes and abolitionists, and finally enshrined in the Constitution in the post-Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The artifacts are really exciting, and there's an amazing online interactive feature where visitors can explore the evolving texts of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and learn that an early version of the 13th Amendment had an equal protection clause, which fell out of that draft and ended up in the 14th Amendment. And then finally, the exhibit includes an extraordinarily moving theater piece called 14, where two actors read original texts about the Reconstruction Amendments, beginning with Frederick Douglass's petition to his former master and including the South Carolina secession petition and then the debates in Congress over the 14th Amendment between John Bingham, who was the James Madison of Reconstruction, an Ohio congressman, and his opponents. There's something so moving about hearing these actors just read from the text and let the words speak for themselves. And it'll be opening on Juneteenth, June 19th, and running regularly uh, after that. So I just am so honored that the Constitution Center, right next to the American Treasures exhibit, showing one of the the five earliest drafts of the Constitution, will also have America's only gallery devoted to America's second founding, known as Reconstruction. Hmm. And you talk about freedom, about equality, about equal protection. Well, on these notes, listeners can find out more online at constitutioncenter.org. Jeffrey, all the best to you and the National Constitution Center team with your vital ongoing work. Thank you for your wonderful questions. and Thanks for a great conversation. Access, stream, and download the Philadelphia Channel bi-weekly, part of the International Innovate podcast series on PRX, the public radio exchange, iTunes, and online at innovatepodcast.org. On behalf of the Philadelphia Channel team and our collaborators, good to have you join us.